practices and some thoughts about wholeness in our lives and ourselves. I'd like to begin by reading a quatrain from Goethe that somebody gave me a long time ago. What is most difficult of all? That which seems easiest of all, to see with your eyes what lies before your eyes. And the reason I was given this quatrain was because a long time ago, in the early days of my practice, I was starting to realize that my eyes really weren't seeing very clearly, <laughs> either my, these eyes here or my inner eye that sees myself. And I was starting to ask myself the question, can my eyes truly see? And it was the practice, starting to look deeply within myself and my own heart, that started to question the way that I had actually structured my reality. I started to ask, can I know what's true anymore? Can I believe my own mind? Can I believe the thoughts that I'm weaving about reality, about myself, about others, about this world? And I really began questioning it all wondering whether my eyes were deceiving me. And as I continued my practice, I realized how distorted my perceptions were, that in fact, I was looking at the world through quite distorted lenses and wasn't seeing very clearly at all. I saw how much I had constructed myself to match my learned, idealized images about who I should be and how I should be in the world. And in fact, I had very little idea about who I was because I was trying to construct something out of the messages that I was receiving in my environment from my parents, my friends, things I was involved with. and didn't really have a sense of who I was, where I sat in my own being. And therefore, I had little idea who anybody else was because it was all kind of confused and kind of distorted. I began, well, not really the beginning, but during my adolescence when I was starting to form some sense of who I was. At that time in the, um, was it the late 50s, actually, (laughs) I was really looking at magazines. You know, looking at the magazines, the, the the girls' magazines that were out at the time, trying to get a sense of who I should be, how I should be in the world, searching for some kind of identity because it was all so confusing. And my brother kept telling me that I needed to have some kind of unique self-image. And the only way that I was going to make it in the world is to to stand out in some kind of unique way. And so that really fed this searching and sort of some urgency that I'd better get a good image if I was really going to make it in the world. And at one point, I thought, well, I'll just bleach my hair blonde. You know, that'll certainly give me an image. And he just hated it. He said, no, that's the wrong image. <laughs> you know, and then that you know, went from one color to the next. So it was just this real, I could feel at that time, even the pain of this fragmentation of myself, not knowing who I was, where I sat, but not really knowing at all how to come into some kind of wholeness within myself. 
And it was really this pain, this pain and this confusion, this fragmentation in myself that led me to the practice, that brought me to the spiritual traditions for some kind of answers for how I might be able to feel more whole, more peace, more content in myself. And as I continued with the practice, the veil began to lift and the glasses began to crack because I could no longer believe what I was constructing in my own mind. And of course, the more I practice, the more convinced I get that it's pretty, uh, be a pretty good idea not to believe so much of what goes on through my mind. Tragically, we do get caught, we get identified with this dualistic thinking. We think that certain ways of manifesting or certain ways of being are better than others. We just, it's just, it's sort of, we might say it's a tragic situation of being human, that we keep setting up these hierarchies of good and bad, better and worse, right and wrong, and we get caught in all the different issues of gender and age, financial status, physical beauty, attractiveness, religious beliefs, emotional states, whatever it is, whatever is out there, we're going to set up usually some kind of hierarchy about what we should be striving for, where we should be going. But at some point, hopefully, we we realize that these beliefs just lead to more division, more separation, and we feel the emotional pain of that. We feel the frustration, we feel the agitation, we feel something that feels quite uneasy, quite unsettled in ourselves. And we want to find a way out, a way to come to some kind of peace in ourselves. Our dilemma is that we pick out a thought, just a thought, some kind of thought or association of thoughts, that arise in our mind about ourselves, about another person, or about our world. And then we put that in a box. Usually it's a fairly closed box, sometimes sealed. And we call that our truth, or the truth of who I am, or the truth about the world. We project that truth outward. And somehow we really get hooked with this. One teacher that I know calls this Velcro mind. It's like these thoughts just stick in the mind, and they're so hard to release ourselves from these ideas, these suggestions. Well, if they were only suggestions, it would be all right. But they become very solid and core beliefs in ourselves. And then we contract and narrow around these thoughts, and we can't see beyond these constructions. The Buddha has called this our tangle of views, the tangle of views. It gets so entangled like a jungle, a thicket, a thicket of views. And that's often where we find ourselves. And and when the mind is so constricted and, and, and thick with these views, we feel it emotionally, we feel it bodily, we feel that contraction and the tightness within ourselves. It's all dependent, everything in within ourselves, the mind, the body, the emotions all dependent, together arising. And our thoughts take on such a reality, but we rarely question it. 
until we begin to probe, until we begin to be really curious if there's a way out of our pain. One of my teachers in India loved to tell the story about this donkey. Well, actually, it was about a lion, but the lion thought he was a donkey. And the story goes that there was this mother cub, mother and her cub. She just gave birth to this cub, but then a poacher came and killed the mother, and the cub was left all on its own. It was just wandering around, and this herd of donkeys came along and took the baby cub with them, and the cub grew up with the donkeys. It started eating like the donkeys and braying like the donkeys and hanging out with the donkeys, and it thought it was a donkey. And it grew up and got a little bit older, and then one day this lion came walking along and looked at this other lion and said, what are you doing? Look, you're braying like a donkey, you're eating like a donkey, but you're not a donkey. Come and look in the water. Come to the river and look in the water and look and see your face. And of course, the story goes that the little lion looked at his face and saw his face and saw he was a lion and he woke up and he roared, the lion's roar. He saw the truth. He saw the truth of his, of his being. And, and he would tell, this, this teacher would tell the story again and again because he was attempting to get us to see and wake up to the truth of our own being, that we are not what we think we are. We're not donkeys. <laughs> but actually, we have the heart, we have the, the nature of a lion, and we can roar that lion's roar when we realize, when we know. But yet who we think we are is often wrapped around these unconscious, limited beliefs. We construct that sense of me and that sense of other, and then we live in this fixed reality, and it's hard to move outside of it, to move around it, until we wake up. Until we wake up. And unless we question these constructions, we continue to feel the pain. We feel the pain of those beliefs that we carry around within ourselves. Today there was a woman in one of my groups who was talking about one of her limited beliefs. And she was saying that life, she sees, she's seeing more and more that life is like a table of food. But there's only so much on that table. So she has to elbow her way in to get her share of that food. But she's seeing more and more that actually that's just a limited idea. And in fact, maybe the table is abundant. (laughs) Maybe the table is boundless. And she doesn't have to push and shove to get her share. She's starting to feel the pain of that, and perhaps that she can trust more. She can trust into the boundlessness of what this universe is offering us. The boundlessness as well of our own nature, of our own being.
whenever we limit ourselves to some kind of fixed idea, when we think that's who I am, we feel the pain of that. Lately, I've been noticing that um, when I look in the mirror, it's an interesting thing that's starting to happen is I can't, act, I don't actually know what I'm looking at. It's like that image that's appearing in the mirror is not as so believable anymore because I don't know what lenses I'm looking through. What am I actually seeing when I look in the mirror? It has to be just filled with all of my past conditioning about who I think I am. And so there's a very interesting thing that happens. It's like I realize I have to hold that image very lightly because it may not be the image that I'm projecting out into the world. It, it probably isn't, because the lenses that I see it from are probably quite distorted. But that realization is there, that awakening is there about questioning that, doubting that. I did a retreat, a six-week retreat, a few years ago, and it was a rather small room, and on the wall was a rather large mirror. and. <laughs> I realized it's very difficult to not look in the mirror when there's a mirror right there. And so what I eventually did was take the mirror down because it was just so disturbing to just have this conditioned habit to just keep looking in the mirror. And I was actually doing some reading uh, readings of um, some Buddhist texts at the time, and I remembered uh, one quote that I had come about which I decided to write on a piece of paper and put up on the wall where the mirror was, which I thought was more healthy and helpful for me. And the quote from this text, which um, it's a text, text called the Majjhima Nikaya from the original teachings of the Buddha, where the Buddha says, non-identification with anything has been declared by the Blessed One, for in whatever way one conceives, the fact is ever other than that. The fact is other than that. Whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. So don't identify with anything, declares the Blessed One. And I thought that was such a, such a good reminder that whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. These kind of reminders for our own mind. As we become more awake to life, to the process of life, it starts to become obvious that we really can't fix anything. That everything is always changing, and we see how we want to fix in our own minds, but I'm sure you've seen already you know, in these couple of days, how many different mind states you've experienced since you arrived here, which probably seems lifetimes ago by now. It's only been a couple of days. But all the changing states of emotions and body and mind and heart, nothing stays the same. We can't fix anything. And yet we try to hold on it's a strong conditioned habit of trying to hold on. And, and the more that we realize that we can't hold on, we feel the pain of that holding. We feel the pain when, we're, when the mind is 
habitually holding on. That pain becomes much more obvious to us. And we see that that holding on is like paddling up a river when the tide is going the opposite direction. And I know this. I I lived recently by a river in England, what tidal river, and strong tides would come in, what come in going going flowing inland and then a certain time of day it would go out. And a couple times we went on a canoe and we had to time it just right because if we went the direction that the t- opposite of the tide, it was so hard. So hard we hardly could even paddle the canoe. The tide was so strong. But that's how it is. We're doing that so much of the time. Paddling upstream will really all we have to do is just turn the boat around and it just goes. We just flow. Flow. We say, go with the flow. So easy. If we can catch that holding on. When we set up one thing as better than the other, we're constantly striving to achieve that better state. But that better state is an imagined state. It's what we're imagining is better through our own conditioning. And that better state is usually a state in which we imagine that we'll be happier when we get that state. We can see that. Probably we can see that already on this retreat and doing the practice, how it is. You've had times, you've had moments or longer where you have felt at ease the practice has flowed, the phrases have flowed, and you feel a certain calm and ease in yourself. And then it changes. <laughs> Things start getting harder. The phrases don't flow so easily. You might hit a wall. You can't even do the practice anymore. And if there's not the wisdom that knows that things are going to change, we can find ourselves struggling and striving to get back to that more pleasant experience, that experience that was effortless. But yet, we may not see that we're actually just setting ourselves up. We're saying, I don't want this state. I don't want the difficult state. I want the other one. That's better. Then I was doing it right. Then it was going well, and now it's, I'm not doing, I'm not doing well. I'm doing it wrong. And we can get into quite a struggle with ourselves when we set these states up, one against the other. And it really is a potential danger in the metta practice. Because metta, or loving-kindness, it can seem a rather idealized state to arrive at. You know, one in which we are you know, we, we can have our own images about what that state is like, you know, being really boundlessly open-hearted and connected to every living being all around us and, and feeling that ease and that happiness and that flow. Now, we can sometimes not subtly and not so subtly set that up for ourselves. So when that isn't happening, when we are feeling more agitated or more frustrating or some hatred or, or resistance or not liking other people around us, we can use that to really put ourselves down, to judge ourselves, to get 
angry at ourselves, and then to fix an idea about ourselves and how we are. Oh, I should have never done this anyhow because I'm really just a really angry person and now I'm finding out about how strong my anger is in myself. And that's who I really am. (laughs) But we start to get some sense of this changing nature of conditions, the changing nature of who we are, and that we can't fix ourselves at any one point. But that we are perhaps all of this, all of these changing conditions. We might think of the meta practice as manipulating conditions to help ourselves feel good or help ourselves feel better in ourselves or feel uplifted in ourselves. And then when we're not feeling that, we're doing it wrong. But it's really important to remember that the meta practice is not necessarily about feeling good. The practice of metta really is holding the simple wish for our own happiness and well-being, and then the simple wish for another's happiness and well-being. Just that, that wish, holding that wish for that to happen, for that to arrive. And then what happens? (laughs) We don't know. We're not so interested in the end result, but more interested in whether we can hold that intention for that wish, for that wish for that happiness within ourselves and happiness within others. Making this wish for my happiness opens me to the possibility to embrace all parts of myself without exception. Because that's really what the metta is. It's a kind of it's an unconditional friendliness or a friendliness towards all things, all conditions, all conditions within myself, all conditions outside of myself. And so it opens me up to the possibility to embrace all of that. But in order to do that, it means that I must be truthful. I really must be truthful. I may have to face my limitation, my sense of limitation very directly, and to acknowledge and to admit to myself, yes, I do get hostile, I do get angry, I do get frustrated, I do get hateful to myself, I do get hateful to others, and to really acknowledge that truth, because the only way that I can embrace it and not pretend or deny that it's there is to open to it and honor it within myself. And also to acknowledge and to affirm that at times I feel loving, I feel accepting, I feel patient and to open to that and embrace myself and honor myself in that place as well. (laughs) Not denying, not ignoring, or pretending we are other than the way we are. When we do that, it does compound more self-judgment because we're pushing aspects of ourselves away. We're denying who we really are, so we're separating that that aspect, those aspects of ourselves, because we don't like them and we, we, we 
keep reifying or solidifying that hate, that fear in ourselves. So the more that we open, the more we're letting go of that fear, the more we're letting go of the hate. Because it's this fear and this hate which really blocks the possibility of our open heart. So the more we open to it, the more that dissolves, the more it dissolves. On one of the three-month courses I was doing at IMS, half of the three-month course I was doing the metta practice. And when I was repeating those phrases, repeating the phrases of wishing for happiness, wishing for safety, wishing for ease in myself, what actually became very obvious was the absence of these feelings. And the metta, the metta in a way has the power to act as a mirror because as we're saying the phrases, as we're repeating the phrases, we actually get to see where we're at. And we're wishing for happiness, we're wishing for contentment and well-being, and then we see, well, that's not where I'm at at all. I'm not feeling that. But it's actually by invoking the, the metta and the phrases that we get to see that. It, 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 it's act, that's part of the power, that's part of the practice itself. So we get to see those places of holding within ourselves, the places that we do close off. And then we are asked to see if we can open to that. Can we open to that? When I would see the times that I was in fear, I was in resistance and agitation, sometimes I would say to myself, oh, haven't I finished that yet? You know, it's like I've been doing this for so long. I'm still going through this because I wanted to be able to do the metta and sort of cruise through it, you know. And Yeah, okay, now I've arrived, you know. But it wasn't like that. And so since I was practicing the metta, the question arose, well, here it is. So how do I hold this truth about myself? How am I going to hold this truth about myself? Do I hold it with shame and with judgment? Or do I hold myself with an open heart? Can I hold myself in that place of metta, even in this present difficult reality? I had to look and see that if I really cared about my own happiness, then I was being called to respond in this very moment, in this moment when I wasn't able to feel happy, when I wasn't able to feel content. What was I going to do? (laughs) Was I going to continue judging myself, getting angry at myself, wishing I was different? Or could I recognize this as a moment of opportunity? Can I relate to this experience in a different way, in a wholesome way? And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending how you look at it, we're offered these opportunities again and again and again. And I do hear people who have spoke to me already on this retreat who recognize that, who are using their experiences, no matter how difficult, as this opportunity for opening. 
they see that there's the resistance to this or that arising, and they say, yeah, I see that I just need to be able to be with myself in a gentle and open-hearted way. Can I do that? What is my capacity to be loving? I suppose that's the question that we are being asked. What is our capacity to be loving? Whether it is towards ourselves or any other living being or any condition in our experience. During these times of negativity, we might use these experiences to judge our practice, we're doing it wrong, we're off track, we've stepped outside of the practice. It's so easy to think that we've gone outside of the practice without actually seeing that the metta is doing its magic. That is the metta. Because metta reflects back the reality of our moment-to-moment experience. So we can see where we're holding, where our heart is closed. I remember in the early days when the metta was taught with the Vipassana on the retreats and we'd have these 45-minute guided metta meditations. And I remember just sitting there with so much aversion, so much hatred about doing metta that most of the time that 45 minutes was filled with that. But of course, I didn't think that was okay. (laughs) I had a tremendous judgment about that. And I usually thought it was because of the way the teacher was guiding the metta. (laughs) And if only the teacher would do it differently, then I'd have a better experience. And I was talking to somebody in the staff room earlier about this, and uh, he was actually saying the same thing. He was saying, I would sit there and I would hate the metta. And he said he went in and talked to told that to the teacher, and the teacher said, will then really hate it. Really get into the experience of hating it. You don't really have that one because that's what's happening. And that way then we're not contracting around it in fear. We're not contracting around that experience in more hatred, more judgment, but we're saying, okay, this is what's happening. Let me see if I can let it happen. The metta practice can reveal what we don't want to see. And it can be painful to see it. Yet it is only through opening our heart to ourselves and our experience that allows for us to embrace that which is difficult. Because as we know, if we judge it, we condemn it, it just gets more contracted, more complex. And then we can feel the solidity of that fixation. We feel the pain of that fixation. I wanted to read a this email, part of this email that a friend sent to me, which some of you might have heard, but I just really love this particular story. He wrote, I wonder if Donna told you about our Denver escapade when the fuel pump on the Taurus gave out as we were starting west on the I-90. The person who came to tow us to a service station offered to let us camp in his garden. 
ever keen to meet people and to accept offers of generosity, I said that would be perfect. Accordingly, we arrived at his house. He had confirmed with his wife that she was okay with his offer. To find a home of most amazing apparent chaos. Everywhere, the roads on two sides filled with campers, tow trucks, other vehicles in various states of disrepair. The two garages filled with all kinds of overflow for household items. The kitchen with all the counters 18 inches deep in utensils and a myriad other objects. The bathroom, which seemed to be no one's obligation to clean, and so on and so on. My overriding feeling about where we found ourselves, how utterly incredible that anyone could be so unselfconscious as to invite strangers back to such a home with, which social conditioning would generally deem an incredible mess. This surely is generosity in the extreme. <laughs> I just think that is so symbolic, really. <laughs> you know, if we can be as unselfconscious <laughs> about our own chaos, you know, our own inner disrepair and say, come on in, you know, <laughs> it's a mess, but, you know, <laughs> I would really love to have you here with me, <laughs> you know, I mean, if we could only be in that frame of mind more of the time so we weren't so self-conscious and having to push ourselves away and push other people away. I mean, as I say this, you know, I'm speaking to myself, too, how it really helps me feel more relaxed and more ease as I say it. It seems we, we want to experience more wholeness in ourselves, but we only want to experience certain qualities, qualities that feel good or feel familiar, and yet, as we know, the whole is made up of complements. It's made up of opposites. It's made up of day and night and hot and cold and happiness and sadness and living and dying. And in fact, that's really the only way we understand our world is by these opposites. We can only understand happiness by knowing sadness. You know, they all make up, make up our life, our reality. And there's this constant interplay between the opposites. This is this delightful balance, this delightful play of nature that we are, nature that we are, not separate from. And if we try to stop this, it's the same as trying to stop the tides in the river. They flow in and flow out. That's nature nature we are. wanted to read something from Thomas Merton called Great and Small. When we look at things in the light of Tao, nothing is best, nothing is worst. Each thing seen in its own light stands out in its own way. It can seem to be better than what it's compared with on its own terms. 
But seen in terms of the whole, no one thing stands out as better. If you measure differences, what is greater than something else is great. Therefore, there is nothing that is not great. What is smaller than something else is small. Therefore, there is nothing that is not small. So the whole cosmos is a grain of rice, and the tip of a hair is as big big as a mountain. Such is the relative view. You can break down walls with battering rams, but you cannot stop holes with them. All things have different uses. Fine horses can travel a hundred miles a day, but they can't catch mice like terriers and weasels. All creatures have gifts of their own. The white-horned owl can catch fleas at midnight and distinguish the tip of a hair. But in bright day, it stares helpless and cannot even see a mountain. All things have varying capacities. Consequently, a person who wants to have right without wrong, order without disorder, does not understand the principles of heaven and earth. They do not know how things hang together. Can a person cling only to heaven and know nothing of earth? The two are correlative. To know one is to know the other. To refuse one is to refuse both. Can a person cling to the positive without any negative? If they claim to do so, they are a rogue or a mad person. The practice helps us to begin to drop into our own hearts. What I see happens is we actually start to drop out of our minds. We start to drop out of our thinking minds. And it's almost energetic, where we might feel the energy is quite bound up on a thinking level. And as we go along and we start to understand more fully about the principles of nature that we are, something starts to drop. And we start to feel more of the energy in our own heart and less so much, hopefully, most of the time or more of the time in our own minds. And there's a real shift. We shift from fixating so much on our own thoughts and the way we think and the way we believe the world is constructed. And we begin to crack and hopefully shatter those distorted lenses which we are perceiving from. And as we touch another aspect of our being, the mind becomes less trustworthy. And something else, something else that is unnameable, undefinable, becomes more trustworthy, more reliable. And we begin to know this something (laughs) that we can't name, but feels like it's moving more in the heart. We start to know that much more profound, but it's not a knowing that arises through the intellect. It's not a knowing that arises through the mind. 
And it's not something that we have put on like we put on a sweater. But it's something that we begin to know just as well as we know our hand at the end of our own arm. It's just who we are. I want to end. No, I don't want to end. (laughs) I want to say before I end, that as I've started to touch more into this place, it's not a place, wish there were words, <laughs> that is not mine, not so much caught up in the thinking mind. What started to happen is there was a silent, what I call a silent forgiveness, kind of an inner silent forgiveness that started to take place. Just a way that when I would find myself acting in foolish ways or unskillful ways, that rather than using that in the old way of condemning and blaming and judging, I noticed there was more of a spontaneous arising of forgiveness. It's okay. Just a way that the mind would just say, it's okay. And the harshness was not there but more of a forgiving. And then when I would have memories about things I did in the past that were harmful or painful to myself or others, the same thing, kind of arising of this silent forgiveness. It's okay. Not the overlay of harshness that I experienced so much in the past. And I find that there's a surprising fruit from the practice, from the metta practice, from the awareness practices that we do, that we don't have to become anything other than who we are. We don't have to become something else. But as we drop more and more into this acceptance of who we are, this is where the healing and the transformation arises from. And then we are less likely to act out towards ourselves and towards others in ways that are going to cause pain, both to ourselves and others. I wanted to end by reading this poem. Oftentimes, my friends send me poetry, which I just love because it's their, you know, their own poetry that they write from their own experience. It's a woman who lives in Canada And I say that, you'll understand why I said Canada, because it's about being cold. (laughs) This is about, she's been practicing for about three years. So just a, a moment of her practice, her evolution. I'm taking the scissors, snipping a seam here, a buttonhole there, unraveling the roll, the rose, but slowly and carefully, No tugging with impatience, resting. Remembering how this sweater used to keep me warm during those terrible dark days of crying for the cold I couldn't keep out. So, in the unraveling, I am gently turning and winding the crimped, bent strand of wool 
making a solid round ball of yarn with which to knit my new jacket. And even though it's winter and my skin stands bare against the ice wind, I feel warmer than I have in years. Let's sit together for a few minutes. May all beings live with a compassionate heart. May all beings live with an open mind. May all beings know the truth of who they are. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.